also going to, uh, we've made a, a decision that we want to worship all together this summer, so we are not going to do grade school or middle school or high school Sunday school from June the 22nd through, I think, August the 10th. It's an eight-week section. Uh, and I mentioned this last week, that's not because we didn't get Sunday school teachers for the summer. We have plenty of folks who volunteer to teach Sunday school all year round, so we have the volunteer folks, but we really want to encourage our younger families to worship together as families. We want to encourage all of our families to worship together as families, but it's a bit more when you have the little ones. It's a little bit more of a challenge as they're moving around and maybe not used to sitting still. Uh, maybe it makes for a little bit longer morning. So we are going to uh, design our services this summer to uh, reach the entire family. So it's not going to be eight weeks of children's sermons or children's series. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be regular worship at Green Tree, but we will uh, we'll know that our kids are with us, and we will, uh, we will make sure that uh, we speak directly to them, that we incorporate them into the worship as, uh, as best we can in order that uh, in the years to come, they will uh, understand a little bit more about what it means for them individually to worship God. So part of this is, is our discipling as parents our children in the next generation, and helping them learn to love to worship God. And so we're going to be uh, doing that this summer. We want to encourage everybody, for those of us who, like me, our kids are, are grown and are out of the house, to, uh, if I come in and worship, to look around the room and see if there's a family that needs an extra hand, to offer them an extra hand, maybe to hold the baby, uh, or that sort of thing. And for young families, we want to encourage you to bring your children to worship, and uh, we will seek to love them well uh, during that time and, and really make it a, a family summer together here at Green Tree. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we are in a transition passage this morning, so I'm going to take just a minute and uh, give you a quick review of where we have been. If you're new to Green Tree, we have been looking and studying the ser- looking at studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and this morning we transition from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 6, and we're actually going to take a pretty big chunk of the first part of Matthew chapter 6 this morning. But before we do that, uh, let me just remind you where we've been. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount uh, so far has been divided into several sections with kind of an overall theme in each one of those sections. So the first section of Matthew's Uh, recording of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is really the first 20 verses, and they are directive in nature. In other words, they're instructional. They're teaching. We get into the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's teaching something about uh, our response to God's grace in our lives. You are the, the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, is it any good anymore? It's instructional. It helps us think about what it means to be disciples of Jesus. The second section, which starts in chapter 5, verse 21, it goes through the end of the chapter, which we concluded last Sunday, is clarification. So each one of those paragraphs, as you look at them in your Bible, Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said X, but I say to you, and then he gives a more full understanding, he gives more descriptive language, he helps people understand where they've gone wrong, in their interpretation and their understanding of the Word of God, in particular the law and the prophets and Moses. And so Jesus would say, for example, you've heard it said uh, that if, uh, if you kill someone, you know, thou shalt not murder. But I say that if you say to someone, you're a fool, 
you're just as guilty. So there's a clarification there. And all of those clarifications, if you look at them carefully, you will notice that Jesus isn't changing the law. He isn't changing the behavior, but he's looking at the motivation behind the behavior. So that's clarification. What we're going to get into this morning, starting chapter 6 and going through the, really the rest of the sermon is what I call cautionary. It's a, a beware, it's a lookout, hey, you're, you're about to run into a little bit of danger or there's a potential danger this way, don't go this way, go that way. And so Jesus is going to be giving us some very serious but appropriate warnings. So you think about how many of you, uh, you know, a, a warning light comes on on the dashboard in your car, okay, you know, so one of the lights comes on and now with cars these days, you know, there's like 75 lights, you don't even know what they mean. How many of you Tell, you got to tell the truth. How many of you look at that warning light and you just kind of ignore it for a day or two, hoping it'll turn itself off? Okay, we got to. How many of you? How does that? How many of you does that just drive you crazy to think that somebody would ignore the warning light? There you go. See, it takes all kinds. The body of Christ is made of all kinds of people. There's something about looking at a warning and ignoring it that's really a bad decision, because I've ignored my warning light in my car from time to time and it never fixes itself. It never turns out well to ignore the warning. I worked on a ranch in Wyoming summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college and thought I was going to be riding the range and roping doggies, and I dug irrigation ditches all summer. Last summer, I worked on a ranch. Uh, but our facilities, our restroom was actually out back of the ranch house, and you walked through a pathway that went through these, the kind of a little boulder field, and the, the main guy warned us when you go out, if you go out at night, take a flashlight and be listening for a little rattling sound because the snakes, when it gets cools off, because we were up at about 8,000 feet when it cools off, uh, not quite that high, the rattlesnakes will go lay on the rocks because the sun has heated the rocks up during the day and it keeps them warm at night. And if you're walking out and you're passing the rocks and you're a little rattle, you might want to be able to shine a light and see what's rattling. And I, one night during the summer, I walked out and I heard a rattle and I turned my flashlight on. There was literally about a four and a half foot long rattlesnake with about 12 rattles telling me this was not the way to go, <laughs> to go a different way. I would have been foolish to try to pet the rattlesnake and thank him for his warning, right? Okay. Are we going to pay attention to the warnings? See, it isn't so much the content of the warning, although that's important, clearly. But what's infinitely more important is how do you and I apply? How do we listen and how do we respond? Because Jesus is the great lover of our soul. He's not warning us because he's, he's like, oh, I know it's really fun over here, so let's make him go someplace else because I don't really like him. We're the people for whom Jesus died. And so when he gives us a warning, it is given out of love. It is given out of grace. It is given out of compassion. How will we respond? Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to skip over to verses 16 through 18. Hear the word of God on the screen and your bulletin on your iPad and your Bible. Follow along. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... 
You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then skipping ahead to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to heed your warning. Father, we thank you that you've told us to call you Father, and in this passage, as Jesus teaches uh, on several different occasions... He speaks about our relationship with our Father. Lord, some of us have had difficult relationships with our earthly fathers, and it's hard for us to imagine a good father. Others of us have wonderful or had wonderful relationships. Maybe with a father who's, who's now gone, and we perhaps you know, miss him terribly. Or we're so thankful for our father who's living, and, and he has been to us a picture of your, of your grace and your faithfulness. Lord, wherever we're coming from this morning, um, with a picture of a father, we pray that you would help us to understand that you are the one that loves us perfectly. And so when you warn us, when you caution us, when you call us to go in a different direction, it's not because you want to rain on the picnic, it's not because you want to spoil uh, our fun, it's because you want us to thrive and grow in that for which we were created. So Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you would speak your truth into our lives, that you would teach us. Forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know and to learn this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Jesus' concern, Jesus' concern for us is that we would appear to love God, but that actually that notion of appearing to love God becomes our focus. So we lose sight of actually loving God, and we say, you know what, as long as I look like I'm doing the right thing, in front of other people, that's actually my, my attention. That's what I'm after. Jesus warns us that that's a real problem. Looking spiritual as my chief aim, instead of being spiritual as my chief aim, is problematic. Look at verse 1. Beware, look out, pay attention here. Beware of what? Of practicing your righteousness. Excuse me. <clears throat> Before other people, now look at this carefully, in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus doesn't say, no big deal how you live. We should practice righteousness. And we're going to get three examples of practicing righteousness this morning. We should live as disciples of Jesus. We shouldn't just think as disciples of Jesus. We shouldn't just have emotions that are emotions of disciples of Jesus. But we should live out our lives as disciples of Jesus. He's not saying that we should do that privately or keep that away from everyone else. What he is saying is make sure that your motives are appropriate. 
Make sure that, that your motives are appropriate. So let's look. My first point in this, I've had three observations of the text. My first observation, uh, aside from kind of the warning in general, is he gives three bad examples or three appropriate examples, perhaps, of how you can make looking good your goal instead of following God. And the first one is found in verse 2, and it's the topic of giving. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or in the streets. Now, lest you get the wrong picture, which it's easy to do, you have an idea of somebody you know, carrying a bag of money, and as they're going up to the synagogue or they're going to the street corner, they have someone sound the trumpet and say, hey, everybody, look at Fred. He's going to give a whole bunch of money right now. Everybody, look at Sally. She's going she's to hand over a big bag of money. And, and it just seems absurd. Jesus is speaking here actually about a custom where someone would come into the synagogue or come into the marketplace, and they would know where the needy were assembled. They knew where the kind of the poorest of the poor stood, and they would blow a trumpet to say, there is relief here. Help has come. Come and see us, and we will, we will give to you so that you can, you know, find your daily bread today. So it was an act of graciousness, but it had been warped to the extent that those who were giving were tempted to give only when the marketplace was the most crowded or only when the synagogue was most, most full. The poor were there all the time. The poor were there 24-7. You could come at 1 o'clock in the morning when nobody else was around, and you could quietly say, hey, come here, don't tell anybody, but let me help you. But what had happened in Jesus' day as a practice had been to make sure that when you give, everyone knows that you are generous. In other words, you make another person's praise your aim. Indirectly, you are looking pious. You're not maybe not speaking about it specifically, and maybe when you walk in, in and you give your gift and people applaud, you go, oh, no, really, it was nothing, right? A little false humility. But in essence, in your heart, your desire is to look pious without really having the generous heart of God capture your soul. Jesus says, that's a bad example. And Jesus says, let me, let me give you another one. Let's not just talk about giving. Let's talk about prayer for a minute. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they will be heard for their many words. So a couple of different things are going on here. First of all, Jesus is saying, don't pray in public. I, I pray before the sermon every week. That's a very appropriate thing to do. We, we should pray. We pray as a congregation. Chip led us in, in a prayer uh, during the, the time of, of singing this morning. Jesus isn't saying don't pray publicly. What he's saying is don't pray publicly in order to have people praise you, in order to have people say, you know, you must really be devout. And also remember that your father doesn't need to be impressed by you. You're already his child. You know, what father sits back and says, well, as soon as you do something right, then I'll love you. That's really a bad father. What mother says, you know, I don't think you've earned my love today. You didn't make your bed, and, you know, you didn't put your shoes away, so no dinner for you. What, what kind of person does that? That's an evil person. Your heavenly father loves you as a, as a perfect father loves his child, as a perfect mother loves her children. Why would you feel the need to perform in order to earn that love? Jesus says your public display in matters of prayer or in many words where your end result is that someone else <laughs> will think you're devout means that your heart is in the wrong place. I do a lot of public praying. 
That just kind of comes with the job. When you, when you invite me to your homes or I go to a wedding of one of your children, typically somebody comes up and says, let's make sure the pastor says the prayer. Why is that? Why, 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 why? I'm working for my supper here, and it's like, okay, we're going to have the pastor come and pray. Well, you kind of think he does it for a living. He ought to kind of know how to do it the right way. And, you know, that's good, and, and, and that's great, actually, and, and, I, and I love the opportunities I have to be a witness for Christ anywhere, even in a prayer. But let me tell you something, that can be deceptive in my own heart. You know, I can start to think, yeah, they called on the right guy. <laughs> and now I really want to wow them, right? Instead of saying, wait a minute, <laughs> my heart is supposed to be directed towards my Heavenly Father. And it doesn't matter who's in the room. It shouldn't matter who's in the room. And so this warning is, is not just for you this morning. This warning is for me as well, that when our intention is looking devout without actually being devout, Perhaps we've gotten off track. And the last bad example Jesus gives is the notion of fasting, the notion of going without a meal or maybe a, a day's worth of meal. In Jesus' day, typically the people to whom he was speaking would fast on Monday and they would fast on Thursday. Typically they would fast two different days a week. And Jesus says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Oh, he's... He, he looks so awful to you, you know, George, what's wrong? Well, I'm, I'm fasting today. I don't want to make a big deal about it, you know. I just, I'm kind of tired. My blood sugar is a little bit low, but don't, don't you worry about me. I'll be friends a lot. Well, I'll speak for myself. I could fast for several days and not look like I'm fasting, and that would not be uh, something that would make me spiritually gloomy. Uh, so clearly there is a notion here. There's an idea here is that I want you to see my earnestness. I want you to see that I deprive myself of my, of my physical food in order that I might eat the manna that comes from heaven and be filled with God's spirit and be so much holier than you. You kind of get this notion of somebody who's just, you know, they're living for something other than worshiping God. And Jesus says, these are, these are terrible practices. All three of these are motivated by a desire for what? A desire for praise a desire to be seen by others. And Jesus says, what's the reward? Well, he says for each one of them, those who give in a way that, that draws attention to themselves, those who pray, those who fast in ways that, that draw attention to themselves, they've already received their reward. It's done, it's over, you can put a period end of it. What kind of reward did they receive? I call it a soon forgotten pat on the back. In other words, someone sees me praying in public or someone sees me giving, and they go, that Tom, he was a nice guy. And then what do they do? They go on with their day. <laughs> maybe they're giving as well. Maybe, maybe their business needs their attention. The, the last thing they're going to think about when they close their eyes at night is not to give a prayer of thanks to God for how great Tom is. That, that pat on the back, sincere though it may be, is forgotten in an instant. And Jesus is kind of warning it, kind of you know, waving his arms at it, saying, do you really want to go down this road? Is that really all that your life is going to count for? The notion that somebody would pat you on the back and tell you what a great person you are. On top of that, not only is that pretty fleeting, not only is, is that relatively shallow, but what is your reward from God? We'll go back to verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It's almost like you give this, you know, this gift, but you make a big spectacle out of it. And you want everybody to see you and, and give you applause. And then you look to God and you say, God, did you see that? Did you see what I just did? It's almost like God said, see what? I'm sorry, I, I missed it. Clearly it was nothing of any consequence whatsoever. 
because it didn't garner my attention. It's as if God ignores it because there's nothing worth seeing here. My giving will never impress God. My praying will never impress God. My fasting will never impress God. Think about this for a moment. Jesus gave his life. I haven't died for anybody lately. Anything I give, no matter how sacrificial, pales in comparison to the Son of God abandoning heaven and all of his glory and going to the cross and giving his life for me so that I might live. And I'm going to stand up and shout, hey, God, look at this gift that I'm giving to the poor. Really? It's of absolutely no consequence. Think about my prayer life compared to the prayer life of Jesus. Go back and read the Gospels carefully, friends. We will find that at every turn, Jesus is going away and he's spending time in private praying. Think about his prayer the night before he died, knowing he was going to the cross. What did he say? He said, Father, is there any way to, to go a different direction? But if not, not my will be done, but your will be done. When is my prayer ever going to match that level? You think about fasting. Jesus, before he started his public ministry, went out into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, I graduated from seminary and treated myself to Citizen Kane's the next night as a congratulations for having finished seminary. And yet, somehow, this warped notion has gotten into our minds that we're more worthy of God's love, we're more worthy of God's affirmation if we, if we publicly show him all these great things we are doing. And Jesus warns us, make honoring God your chief aim. Your motivation is what's crucial here. Giving and prayer and fasting, these are actions that can and should draw us into friendship with God, as we'll see in just a moment. Jesus commends all three of these, but his focus is on the impetus behind them. Why am I doing what am I doing? What I'm doing? Well, if, if the true goal is to honor God, how, how do I make that shift in my heart? How do I turn away from saying, I, I want the audience to be all of you, to an audience of one? How, how do I reshape? my thinking. And I think the passage answers the question. Jesus warns us of which way not to go, but he also offers us a, the way of life. Let's talk about giving for just a second. I'm going to call this quiet generosity. Chapter 6, verse 3, and when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And by the way, I've titled this second observation, not if, but when, because Jesus calls us to all three of these activities. Jesus calls us to give generously and sacrificially. Jesus calls us to a life of prayer. Jesus calls us to the discipline of fasting. And we'll talk a little bit about why in just a moment. So it's not a question of if, but it's a question of when. So Jesus says, when you give, give quietly. Give in a way that, that actually your giving becomes a reflex based on your relationship with me. And it's not an event. In other words, it kind of happens from muscle memory. It's what I wish my golf game looked like where I just could hit the ball every time, and for perfect muscle memory, the ball would go where it should. I don't even kind of even have to think about it anymore. I just kind of have to do it. it. My golf game is not there, nor is my giving, quite frankly. And Jesus says it ought to just be something that happens naturally the more you're connected with me. The more time we spend together, the more you see how much I love you, the more you see how I have given myself for you, 
the more you see how I am with you every step of the way until you get home. And then Jesus, even in his own admission, says, I can't even begin to describe for you what eternal home is going to look like. It so far exceeds anything that you can even imagine. So let your giving, disciple of mine, be quiet. Let it go unnoticed by others. Give generously. Give maybe more than you can even think you can afford, but give it in a way that brings praise to God and not to you. I've had this experience personally, but I was talking to a friend probably about six months ago, and he was sharing with me about a hard time his family had gone through and how it seems like at every turn, kind of at the last moment when things kind of look desperate and they maybe didn't have money for rent or whatever the case may be or some, some groceries, that some food would show up on their doorstep. Or, or an envelope of cash with, you know, just, you know, somebody knew. And it was always anonymous. And the next thing he said to me was not, you know, whoever those people were, they were the greatest people ever. He said, we just praise God that he would, he would bring people like that into our lives. See, the praise went to God. And that's how it's supposed to be. Jesus says, then we're, then we're going down the right, the right trail. Uh, I'll confess to you that, uh, that our consultant in our One Fund campaign suggested to me, uh, and, and I don't think he was wrong for doing this, so this is going to sound like I do, but I don't, think, I, I don't think his motives were wrong. He suggested to me that we allow people to name things. You know, if you want to name a classroom, if you give a certain amount of money, you can name a sidewalk. Or, you know, I'm trying to think what I would have named um, one of the steps on the slide or something. But the notion was, you know, if people get to name things, then they, you know, then they, they tend to, to be a little bit more generous. And I said, we're not going to do that. And, and I, it's, it's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with having your name on something. Don't, don't misunderstand that. But why would I give you the opportunity as your pastor to go down the wrong road? <laughs> why, would I, why would I in any way be part of suggesting to you that, that public fame is what's most important? So there aren't going to be any names on our building. It might take us two years longer to get there, but I think we'll be better disciples of Jesus when we eventually... Arrive. Jesus says, let your generosity be quiet. He also says, let your prayer be private and let it be humble. When you pray, go into your room. Sorry, that's a, I should have a, a why there. Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And then I, I didn't put the follow-up verse of that, but he talks about don't go babbling on. Your Father already knows what you need. That's the humility. That's the humility part. In other words, our focus is on and our confidence is in our Father. Our prayer life is not about being heard by others. It's simply coming before our Father and focusing on His goodness. When you think about your prayer life, I don't know about yours, but my prayer life typically starts off with, with some praise at the beginning of my prayer. Maybe I'll read in the Psalms. Uh, but I, I just want to be focused on the awesomeness of God. I need to be reminded of how great He is. Therefore, I can have confidence in Him because I'm bringing to Him real-life issues. I'm bringing him either situations in my life or situations in your lives about which I know, and they're important, and they're crucial, and some of them are very, very painful. I don't want to pray to somebody who can't answer that prayer. I don't want to pray to somebody who's indifferent to those concerns. I want to pray to someone who knows what I need or knows what you need before I ever pray for you and knows how he's going to answer that prayer because he loves you, because he loves me. That should bring about humility in my life. It should make me want to pray more in private, actually, than in public. And then when we fast, I'm calling this an invisible fasting. When you fast, anoint your head 
with oil and wash your faith. In other words, just go about your business like you would any other day. If, you know, if, if I dress like this typically on Sunday morning, and if I were to come in next week and I'd have a, you know, an old, beat-up, terrible, ugly shirt on and you know, beat-up tennis shoes and just kind of walk, what are you doing? Well, I'm fasting, and I kind of wanted to look that way on the outside. You said, yeah, there's something seriously wrong with you, which would be a correct conclusion. But rather, you don't know if I'm fasting today or not. I don't think anybody saw whether I ate breakfast this morning or not. And I'm not going to tell you. But I actually did eat breakfast this morning. But that's how it should be. There might be 15 people in this room that are fasting today. We shouldn't know about that at all. Why? Because the focus on, pra- on fasting is to remind me, A, of the blessings with which God has given me, and B, that there are folks that are living without those blessings and making me a more thankful person. That's the whole purpose behind fasting. It's the whole purpose behind that, that unnoticed self-denial. It reminds the disciple of the needs of others and reminds us of our own need for our Father's provision. And Jesus says, when you do it this way, when your heart is directed towards honoring God, when when you're in this manner of, of your Father is your focus, you're wanting to be with Him, you're actually wanting to be like Him, you're desiring His glory and not your own, that will cure your motivational missteps. That will change your heart. When you say, above all else, I want to honor my Father, all these other things fall into place. If I say, I want to honor my Father, then when I start to think about my giving, I'm going to remember that my Father tells me to do that quietly, to do that in a way that doesn't sound a lot of trumpets. I'm going to remember that if I want to honor my Father, that I need to get alone with Him and share my heart with Him and not make a big public display of it. And the same with my fasting. If I really want to honor my Father, if I really want to be spiritually nourished in the way that fasting promises to spiritually nourish me, I do it in a way that you'll never notice. Why? Because then it's all about my relationship with my dad. And he's the one who feeds me. He's the one who nourishes my soul. Focuses everything here, brothers and sisters. But what's the reaction? What if, what if we heed the warning this morning? What if you're you know, sitting there thinking about this and I'm sitting there preaching I go, you know, there's really one or maybe all three, but I, I'm going to really think about this one because that's really a, a challenge for me. How does the Father react when we start to move in that direction? Well, look at verses 4, 6, and 18. They all say exactly the same thing. Your giving is done in secret, why, and then what? And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look down at verse uh, 6. You'll see the same thing. Your father who knows, uh, excuse me, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 18, your father who sees in secret will reward you. The exact same language. It's a father's reward. Now you got to think about it in these terms. You can't think about it in a reward like, you know, you, you caught the bad guy and you brought him into town and somebody, you know, hands you a $500 bounty for catching the bad guy. You can't think of it in terms outside the family. You've got to think about it in terms of a father. How does a father or a mother reward their children? How do they reward their children? They reward them with unconditional love. They reward them by giving everything they have for them in their best interest. It doesn't mean they lavish them with, with gift upon gift, but they give them what they need most. A good parent looks at every situation and they say, what's the best thing I can do for my kid right now? The best thing might be a spanking. The best thing might be a timeout. The best thing might be a a weekend away just with dad and child. The best thing might be we pack up the car and we run to McDonald's for X reason. But that's the motive. The father the mother looks at it and says, what's the best thing I can do for my kid right now? That's God's reaction. 
I want to reward my child. They're getting it right. They're going in a good direction. And so we're promised things like God's presence in our lives. We're promised things like his protection from our own sinful desires of flattery or self-praise. And not only in this life, but we are promised a reward that is not fleeting. We're promised a reward in heaven for all eternity. We're promised a perfect family relationship with our Father. That's why Calvin wrote and he said, Our highest satisfaction is having God as our only witness. Because then our focus is correct. I'm going to end with a story this morning that's a pretty simple story. But it ended up having a, a pretty profound impact on, on Cindy's in my life. We were in youth ministry years and years and years ago, early 80s. Uh, and I may have told a story before, I can't remember. We wanted to go home for Christmas, but we didn't have the money to go home for Christmas that year. And so we were going to stay in, in Tennessee. And uh, we worked with high school students in, in uh, Chattanooga. And the day before Christmas, I came out to my car and I opened the door. And there were, I think it ended up being like $151 bills just scattered all through the car. And I was thinking I should lock my door. And then I actually thought, no, maybe I shouldn't lock my door. It's better to not lock your door. There was no note. There was no, hey, we knew you couldn't go home for Christmas. There was no, and, and after we had, and in those days, 150 was plenty of money to get us to St. Louis and enjoy the, the holiday with the family and, and get back to Chattanooga. It was, it was more than enough to do that. And when we got back, there was no follow-up. There wasn't anybody that, like, in, in April said, hey, how was Christmas? You know, we wanted to make it never happened to this day. I have absolutely no idea who did that for us. Little tiny gift in the grand scheme of things. But somewhere along the line, somebody said, here's a way that we could bless somebody else, but here's a way we could honor our Father. Don't tell anybody about this. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, challenged on every side with the desire for praise from others. Lord, in, in some ways that's a, a self-inflicted wound because we're selfish and we just kind of want what we want. But in other ways, perhaps it's because we have been um, hurt by neglect or by people who should pay attention to us, ignoring us. Lord, you know every person in this room and you know where this is a struggle or, or where we are, where we're growing in this. So Lord, I just pray that you would take this word that you would apply it to our lives, that we really would live for an audience of one, our Father, who loves us unconditionally and will see us home safely. I pray in his name. Amen.